What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. having me on the show tonight. I am looking forward to it. Oh, I'm super excited about hearing about all your tales of the uh, the uh, sea monsters of the, the Great Lakes. It's, uh, it's someplace that I am very close to and uh, literally from my house probably 50 to 60 percent of the time that I leave my house I turn right and head north into the state of Michigan. 
I am uh, about 35, 40 minutes from St. Joe and, uh, and the beaches there. And one of my favorite haunts is uh, uh, from a child all the way through being a grown-up has been South Haven, Michigan, which is a yep. delightful uh, beach town that doesn't seem to have uh, fared nearly as badly as some have around here. They have not seemed to uh, got too overgrown throughout the years. Um, as as places like New Buffalo have. But, uh, Chitan, it's great to have you here. Um, before we get into the, the stories of the, the Great Lakes and these areas, um, you sent me a bio that uh, I'm not even going to attempt to <laughs> to read to, to our listeners because we'd be here for a, a, an extra half, half hour. Um, really impressive, amazing, uh, bio that you sent me. And, uh, if you would, for the listeners, just tell them, uh, tell them what you have going on and what, what pots you have your fingers in, because there's an awful lot of them and, uh, and that let everybody know where they can get a hold of your material. Okay. Well, um, my name is Shatia Noir and I am an author. Um, my three cryptozoologies that I have right now are Monsters and Odd Creatures of the Great Lakes, Mothman and Other Flying Creatures of the Midwest, and Marvelous Misadventures of Tegan Gray, uh, Tegan versus Bigfoot. That is a children's book um, and a part of a children's book series that I'm developing. I am also managing writer for Squatch GQ Magazine, Inc., and our magazine titles include Squatch GQ, Squatch Digest, Watchers Magazine, which focuses on uh, UFOs and extraterrestrials, space, um, all that good stuff. And then uh, G-Hunter, which is the paranormal, um, ghost hunting, high strangeness, um, things that fall into that category. I also run my own podcast, which is Into the Liminal This Paranormal Podcast. And I also have a web series, uh, which is Jatian Noir Presents. Into the Liminal Abyss, Weird Travels. I am the uh, lead investigator for the Michigan chapter of the North American Dogman Project. I am also affiliated with a couple different paranormal groups, including uh, Blackwater um, Paranormal uh, in uh, Perrysburg, Ohio. Um, I just uh, became a member of a new organization, um, NAPPA. I know it sounds like Napa, but it's not. It's um, National Association of uh, Psychics and Paranormal um, Investigators. Wow. So, um, um, as if I don't have enough plate on my plate, as you know, as it is. I also teach at two different community colleges um, a course on the paranormal history of the Great Lakes. Um, I teach at Kellogg Community College uh, here in um, Kellogg, Michigan. And then I teach at uh, Owens Community College in uh, Owen, or um, in Perrysburg, uh, Ohio. And I um, will be adding an additional course as interest is shown, um, and that is uh, Cryptozoology of North America. So... Um, Yes, I, I do a uh, a lot of different hats, and uh, 
am very busy with a lot of things, but I love doing podcasts. I love doing presentations. Um, you will also see me at a lot of different paracons, uh, hopefully this uh, spring, summer, fall. Um, hopefully they hold. Uh, otherwise, you'll see me doing Zoom breath presentations, which is okay, but. Not quite as fun as being in front of the people. Yeah, it's not, it's not as fun. Um, you know, I, I love it when people come up to me afterwards and say, I'm glad you brought up such and such because I've seen it. And so that opens so many, so many different conversations. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm based here in Michigan, but I travel, uh, quite a bit and I'm always looking for, uh, the next story. So, um, I am, Always, always, uh, paranormal, cryptozoology, UFOs, uh, that's, you know, that's pretty much my job to investigate. A woman after my own heart. And it doesn't sound like you have much time to sleep. You know, I do love my sleep, but as of late, um, my hours for sleeping are usually from, uh, like 7 a.m. to noon, um, because I had people messaging me. All throughout, and because I talk to people all over the world um, for interviews, and both for the magazines and for my podcast, so um, I could be talking to people from Australia, New Zealand, uh, Wales, uh, Ireland, Scotland, England, you know, Mexico, or you know, uh, next state over Ohio. So it, it just really depends on who who I'm talking to, and. Uh, so my uh, my hours of sleep are a little bit strange, but you know it it it's nice to be able to do what you love. That that's a big plus. Being able to do something you enjoy is is a uh, a, a tremendous reward. I, I will say that. And and by the way, you know, like they say, sleep when you're dead. So yeah. <laughs> All right, Shitan, before we move off of this, your book series, where can, where can people find them uh, for sale? Oh, yes. So all of my books are available on Amazon. Uh, if you just want to search my name, S-H-E-T-A-N-N-O-I-R, that will bring up all of the books that I have written. I also have a series of folk magic uh, books. Um, that fall under the category of pagan spellcasts and stuff like that. So those books are also available. But uh, you can find all of my books on Amazon. And for the magazines, if you go to www.squatchgqmagazine.com, you will find all of our magazine titles at that website. And you can order the magazines individually. You can order a yearly subscription. We do quarterly uh, magazines, but there are, um, at this time, we have four different magazines um, available. Each one is focused on a different topic, but we might be possibly adding new um, magazine titles in the future. Squatch GQ. That's funny. Is that a, is that a clothing clothing magazine for No, actually, um, the, the thought behind it is the Squatch GQ, um, the actual magazine, is a little bit more lighthearted, fluffier take on, you know, cryptozoology um, so that kids can educate themselves but not be scared. Now, Squatch oh, that's, Digest, that's a great take on it. Squatch Digest, which it, we also publish, focuses more on the scientific search and investigations. 
and investigators who this is what they do. They go out in the field, they look for evidence, you know, whether it's Bigfoot, Dogman, pterosaurs, you know, uh, lake monsters, this is what they go in and they investigate. And um, then I interview them and see, you know, what kind of evidence they found. Awesome. You're a veritable cornucopia of knowledge or uh, an, excite, an encyclopedia of uh, paranormal uh, information. Yeah, I try to be. <laughs> well, all right, let's get into the uh, the lake monsters. We here in the sure. Midwest, uh, we have are surrounded with uh, some, some beautiful lakes, very large bodies of water. But before we get to the, the Great Lakes, I was wondering if you could maybe start a little bit closer to my home. Okay. And uh, let's let's go back into, I believe it was 1964 in the Dwajak area around Dewey Lake. There was a, uh, a summer filled with reports of the Dewey Lake monster. What can you tell us about that? So the reports that I have come across, now one did, it talked about a gentleman who was staying with some friends there and something attacked him and they weren't quite sure whether it was a Bigfoot type creature or if it was a more water-based creature because they didn't really get a full on look. They, they, you know, were able to um, question the gentleman who was attacked, but they were never quite sure whether it was a Bigfoot, whether it was an amphibious creature or if it was, you know, he had just gotten into a fight with somebody and decided to cover his track and made up this story about the Dewey Lake monster. Now, for me as a researcher and an investigator, it's not my job to prove yes or no what any of these were. My job is to look at the report and when they were made, who made them, and the information that was given in the report. So, yes, there was allegations of an attack by a monster, but we don't know if it was one of these Bigfoots that is more swamp habitat, and so they have the algae and, and um, maybe a little bit longer claws because you have to realize that whatever they're eating, they're probably pulling out of the, the swamp or the, the water, probably slippery, so... There, you know, we're going to hone our physical capabilities, which is we're going to have nails. We're going to have long, sharp nails so that when we grab something, it doesn't slip right back out of our hands and go swimming off in the water. Right. So we don't know if it's, it's a big foot of, of that distinction, where it's more of a water swamp space. You know, that's its hunting element, and that's what it's chosen, um, you know, to, to focus on as its food sources or if it's a more amphibious creature. And if it's a more amphibious creature, it makes it even more interesting because uh, one of the reports is that this was a hairy-covered, you know, creature. So have they developed a, a, you know, algae of their own, that kind of seaweed that grows on them? I don't know if anybody out there has ever seen really old snapping turtles or musk turtles they literally have, the older they are and the bigger they are, they have their own biosphere yeah, growing, growing on growing their on back their shell, yeah. of, of algae and stuff like that. So that, you know, that could be a factor in this creature that, you know, we get reports of, of you know, the Dewey Lake. Now, I have not personally been there. 
Um, I will be there this September because I'm doing the, um, the, the festival that's there, uh, put on by, um, there, there's a presentation, um, of it that's put on by, um, the, the lost, lost scripted. Yeah. Uh, yep. Great guys. So I will be there this September and hopefully I will get a chance to actually, you know, look at the location and, um, talk to people in person and see um, if I can get any more clues or facts from that. Well, I hope to see you there because I, I, my intentions are to be at that as well. Awesome. So in my limited investigation into the Dewey Lake Monster, and it was something that I had heard of years ago, but never really delved into it until maybe in the last two years. And uh, the the reports that I found the majority of them all sounded more like what we would associate with a, a Bigfoot sighting. Um, but there were a couple that, like you said, uh, would would indicate that maybe the creature was somewhat aquatic because uh, hanging moss or uh, seaweed was, uh, I don't remember which, which um, description was given. It seems like maybe like a hanging moss. Um, mm-hmm. And like you said, you know, with turtles that are of uh, substantial age, you'll see that biosphere growing on their shell. And I, I wonder, though, you know, like if if that was what was going on with this creature, that would kind of lead you to believe that it would have to spend an awful lot of time submerged. Well, that the Beckett part plays partly into um, its, its camouflage and how it's you know, goes undetected um, just because most of its body is underwater doesn't mean that the head and stuff has to be underwater. True. Um, but then you have to, you know, because Michigan is one of those, it's a, it's a four season state. So during, you know, the warmer parts of the summer, spring, fall, it's probably, you know, doing quite fine. But once those cold temperatures start to hit, almost all of our amphibian reptilian species that are water-based, they burrow into the mud, and that's how they hibernate. Now, a creature that big, um, I don't know how it would do that, unless it has some type of cave system where there are, you know, warm thermal temperatures that are maintained, and it can actually, you know, live there during the colder months. Yeah, there, w- there would definitely have to be something that was uh, producing some um, thermal heat. In, in order for them to, I can't imagine something that would be, I mean, certainly, you know, the, the waters freeze over there. There's no way that it's going to be under the ice. I mean, I, I don't believe that it would go into a stasis mode where, where it can't, uh, it just exists and, you know, doesn't breathe and doesn't have any. Uh, yeah. We, we see that minor. Bodily yeah. We, we see that with alligators, um, particularly in the um, Ohio river. As long as their snouts can be, you know, above where where the surface ice is, they can shut their their heartbeats down to a very very slow, maybe you know one heartbeat per minute. As long as their nasal passages do not freeze, they can go into that state of almost suspended animation and exist at that for as long as it takes until the ice on thaws and they can, you know, go back to a faster function of, of um, their heart and their lungs. But that's reptilian. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. That's reptilian. Now, in mammals, 
generally, if your body temperature falls, you know, yeah. to that, you know, point of cooling, you're going to go into hyperthermia and it, it's only going to get worse, you know, the colder you get. So as far as the Dewey Lake monster, the, the jury's pretty much. Yeah, still that's that. I put a huge question mark in the air on that one. Um, just because I have not had boots on the ground to actually investigate it or talk to people. And, you know, it's, it's a fascinating story. And, you know, I, I know that they have a lot of, um, of interest in it in that, you know, in that particular town. And it's one of their, one of their focal points for, for a place to visit. So hopefully when I get there in September, I can, I can get a better look at everything and, uh, some more intel. Yeah. The local community has really embraced the whole idea behind this. It is hook, line and sinker. Everywhere you turn, there's, there's something promoting the, uh, the Dewey Lake monster and, uh, it's fun. It's, uh, it, it makes for a, a nice little conversation to, to get things started. And, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting story. But my my issues with it are are those two very divisive camps as far as mm-hmm. what the the descriptions were. That's a, it's a pretty it's a pretty right. big jump from one to the and, other. And you know, and you know, we could have a situation where the initial report could have been very spot on and and focused on a real creature, but then initial reports or sightings um, might have just been glimpses of things that were naturally occurring. But because that atmosphere had been, you know, activated, uh, we have a, of a we have a creature here um, in the surrounding area. Mm-hmm. People, you know, people want to see it, and so therefore, every little weird thing that people see, that's the monster. And so then you get this um, what I call the small town monster, you know, going, and it it becomes all encompassing for the town. But, you know, on, on one hand, that's a really nice thing because the more people who talk about it and have sightings, the more they're likely to talk to someone like me who is coming to research it and, you know, wants to find out more. Whereas if you go into a location where, yeah, there's been a sighting, but nobody wants to talk about it, you really don't get as much information. And an inch of, of information is, is more to work with than none. And then you have the unfortunate aspect of it is when something like this happens and it, it, it causes excitement and you see businesses that are becoming popular because they've embraced the, uh, uh, the name or the uh, image of, of a creature that uh, the town has become known for and they want to be a part of that. But the only way they can think of getting to be a part of that is to perhaps create a, mm-hmm. a, a an encounter that throws some information in that Kind of throws, throws yeah. The I mean that that, that you know that does have its obstacles, but I would rather be able to at least have something to work with than nothing at all. You know, there there's times where I go to a location that's supposed to have activity or a haunting, or there's a a urban legend that goes along with it. And nobody knows anything about it when you get there. And you're like, okay, so am I in the wrong location? Or do people just not talk about it here? But then there's other times where I go to a location and everybody has a, has a story to tell about or knows someone who has had 
in a, um, you know, encounter or a situation that's, you know, come from it. And it's almost overwhelming, you know, because you get so many different points of views and different experiences from people who have actually, you know, encountered something. So it's, you know, it's a bit of give and take on both hands. All right. So if you would, I'd like to move a little, uh, sure. a little Northwest, more to the coast of, uh, coast of Lake Michigan to, uh, to my favorite town, South Haven. And, uh, let's talk about what they had, uh, back in 2019, sure. I believe it was, they have some static cameras, static cameras around the town. And, uh, you can go to a website and just view the, the waves crashing against the, the piers and, and the beaches. And, uh, lo and behold, somebody who was watching happened to, uh, point out that there was, uh, a rather, rather sizable undulous looking, uh, creature, eel looking mm-hmm. snake, like, uh, long bodied that was, uh, kind of caught up in the, in the waves along the side of the, the pier. And then eventually actually even came up onto the pier and across and uh, I tell you, you know, I mean, the, the video's widely available on the internet and uh, it's, it's a bizarre it, it looking is. thing. And for people who are not, um, who have not been to Lake Michigan and don't quite um, know what we're talking about. So along the, the Michigan shoreline of Lake Michigan, um, we're talking piers. We're not talking these, you know, narrow wooden, um, uh, you know, piers that go out 10 feet into the water. We're talking about, what would you say, a thousand foot? Yeah, at least. It's a, it's a basically an, it's, it's a yeah. breakwater uh, inlet to, so, the, to the Black River, which is, uh, comes in off of the, so, off of you know, we're, we're talking the about Valley. these. Yes. It has a lighthouse on it. So, yeah, I mean, if, we're, to, that, we're talking about when we're talking piers on on Lake Michigan on the on the Michigan side, we're talking about these long, solid concrete structures that um, they sit, they go out into the lake about a thousand feet or more. Most of them have lighthouses on on the end of them, and then they are at least uh, fifteen feet, maybe twenty feet wide. Actually, I think. I, I'm sorry. I think I think South okay, Haven's so, is 35 so foot. So about 35 feet, and at least 20 feet um, above water level. And they build these so big because when the winter storms come in, um, even the the gales and the and the summer storms, these waves are reaching the actual lighthouses that are up on the, these large piers. So um, these are you know little weird wooden piers like you'd, you'd have on a pond. These are these are immense, huge um, concrete and steel structures uh, that take quite a bit of time to build, and then they put lighthouses on them. And they are a focal point of tourism in um, the Lake Michigan, uh, Michigan side, because they are, you know, the beaches are there, they're tourist destinations. So when we're talking about um, this uh, lake monster video that was documented and you you see what is a black undulating um, creature, so to speak. The mere fact that you can, you know, this pier is huge, it's very long, but the mere fact that we can very well see 
um, this object undulating in the water, moving back and forth. Um, some people have said that it's a irrigation hose. It's, it's too big and flexible to be an irrigation hose. Um, other people have said it, it, it's, you know, fabric or something of that nature. With the, with the wave activity, the way it is, if you're looking at this, this video, fabric of any kind is going to get very quickly torn apart. Um, considering that it's brushing up against concrete and metal um, surfaces. So what could this creature be? We don't really ever see the head of it or the beginning of it. We do see an ending to it, but with the way that it looks like it, you know, with the activity that you see happening, it does look like this creature is actually trying to wiggle back into the oncoming waves to possibly get itself off of the pier and back into actual water so it can swim away. And and I notice like at least when I see it, when I'm watching, you know, they look like they're they're nearly 10 to 12 10 to 12 foot swells right up against the uh, right. the cement of the the pier. And at the point that it in a couple of frames you can see what looks to be probably the majority of its body. And you know, I'll agree with you 100% that you know, some kind of flexible tubing there's no way it could be that. And if it was, when I first saw the video, I think somebody uh, said, oh, it's just probably just a big piece of uh, black plastic that was, well, if if it was just a piece of black plastic, things like that, that don't have a lot of weight to them in, in very uh, turbulent waters have a tendency mm-hmm. to ride on top of the water and the waves will go underneath it. Yeah. This thing had mass because when the waves hit it, yes, it was and, pushing and that, it forward. That's important to reference is, Plastic or fabric will com- will compress under pressure. This thing actually yep. keeps its its width and its um, its circumference as the waves are are pushing against it and pulling you know away from it. It actually keeps its dimensions. It doesn't you know plastic and fabric is going to collapse underneath that. And the point where it comes up onto where the, the, the majority of the body of whatever this is makes it up on top of the, uh, the pier itself as the tail, which I don't know if it is a tail, but let's, we'll refer to it as the tail, the tail end of, of this thing, as it comes up, it almost has the appearance of having a split in the tail. And if, if it was a piece of fabric, if it was torn, I mean, it, it could be any number of things. Doesn't yeah. necessarily have to be a sea monster, but given the given the girth of this thing and the uh, the obvious weight that that there is to it, this thing just looks like it's you know as as much as it's being pushed around and bullied by the waves, it does look like it's got some kind of uh, right. motion to itself, and and it makes itself across the the thirty five foot span of that pier, and then it appears that it under its own power, pushes itself off and, and continues back on the south side of that pier. And the interesting thing to note is that there wasn't any reports of um, any fabric, plastic, or irrigation tubing uh, debris, you know, breaking apart and washing onto shore. There, there wasn't any mention of any of those things being pushed up on shore and you know, being, you know, trapped in the sand. Um, the Lake Michigan shoreline is, is sand. And so 
there was no reports of this. So whatever it was either went back out into the lake or up into one of the river, you know, or streams that are right there. And, you know, was able to at least get off of the pier. So it's, it's, you know, quite interesting. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, without having seen any head on the creature, you know, it's always going to be an unknown of what it actually was and what we were seeing. Now, to your knowledge, is there anything within the Great Lakes, uh, especially, you know, in, in Lake Michigan that would resemble? So with, with it being, with it being that dark color, um, and the fact that you don't really see the suits or um, the the ancient looking um, uh, body pattern of like a surgeon, I would say this could probably be a very large uh, robot fish, um, which are very dark, very um, serpentine in shape, and they do get to a, a large size, and so. If, if we were going to look at a natural occurring species that, you know, this possibly could have been, it could have very well been a burbot fish that had just uh, gotten trapped in the waves and, and washed up and got stuck there on the pier. I'm sorry, could you say the name of that fish again? Sure, a burbot. Could you give me a spelling of that? Yes, um, B-A-R-B-O-T. I've never heard of it. If you, um, the, this fish is very um, versatile for being a lake monster. If you look up the Bessie from uh, Lake Erie, um, baby Bessie, there is a burbot mm-hmm. fish that was um, a taxidermist had actually made to look like a sea monster. Oh, really? Yeah. So it, to your knowledge, has there ever been anything uh, uh, since since 2019, any other uh, uh, information come forward about this thing? It just, it, it strikes me as so um, unusual because at the point that it leaves the, uh, the, it leaves the pier and you can see it reenter the water and, and head off to the, the left-hand side of the, the video screen. The thing that strikes me as interesting is when you first see this creature coming into frame on on the on the right side before it gets up on top of the the pier it's it's being thrashed around by the waves and it's actually you can see it uh coiled up in in the swells but but when it leaves the the pier and heads off on the left side of it 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 looks as though it straightens its body out into a long linear shape and then just it looks like there's one splash like near what you would think the head would be. And then it, it just goes into that hole. It doesn't seem to be being pushed by the waves anymore. It doesn't look like it's being shoved towards shore. It just looks like it's making a, uh, a parallel uh, escape to the rest of the beach. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I really have a hard time believing that this isn't something that's on uh, under its own power. Yeah. Um, every once in a while that, that video resurfaces and everybody's like, oh, it's brand new news. It's like no, look at look at the date of when it was posted by, um, the, you know, the people who actually you know documented the video, and and posted it in the first place. So, you know, there there's always going to be um, people analyzing it, investigating it, 
and, you know, different opinions about um, what it could or could not be. And, you know, like we, we discussed, without actually seeing the head of it or seeing the whole from, you know, from the tip of the head down to the tip of the tail, um, the whole creature out of the water, we really will not know um, what kind of creature it was or, you know, even if it was a living, breathing creature. I have a hard time thinking that it's, it's you know, a man-made object, fluidity of its body movements, and the fact that you do see it at certain points fighting against the waves to try to make that, you know, um, dash back into the water. Anybody who's ever, you know, tried to clean a fish tank and tried to catch your fish that's in there, um, exactly. You know, you you are you are are surprised yet not surprised at you know how quickly fish can evade um, and escape yeah. your net and uh, and do the same type of okay we're butting against the side of the tank and oh I see a quarter of an inch gap right there I'm gonna go for it and then they should pass your net your net and, and you have to start the process all over again. Um, so, you know, a, a creature, a fish, a species that depends on living in the water, they do not want to be up out of the water like that and exposed to the air. And so they are going to do everything in their power to get back into the habitat that is most beneficial to them, which happens to be under the water. So, um, without seeing the head, without seeing the full body, we can only guesstimate, and you know that's that's what I come across when I see people discussing that video. Is everybody has an opinion and an idea, and they're not right and they're not wrong, because obviously we nobody uh, captured whatever you know physically captured um, the creature that was you know on the video, um, and there was no nobody who could actually you know view the body, um, do any research on the body. So we will really never know what exactly it was or what species it could have been. Well, I tell you, you know, the, I have, I have a, a unique perspective on that video because South Haven is a town that I've been to. I couldn't even tell you how many times I, I started going there in my early teens. My parents had a boat on the black river for years and years. And I spent countless hours at the North beach. I spent countless hours at the South beach and I've been on both piers, uh, the North Pier and the South Pier. And this video takes place on the South Pier. And I can tell you that judging by the size of, of that, whatever that was that washed up on the pier and having been on that pier multiple times, that thing looks as it's resting before it goes back into the water, as it's resting there amongst the, the steel uh, girders that go across there. I'm going to say it has to be every bit of two and a half two and a half feet from, from its, what would be its belly to the top of its back. Yeah. And, and, and that's no exaggeration. It, it could possibly be even more, whatever that is. It's a very large piece of creature or a very large piece of debris. I, I'm going to go on record as saying my, my, my belief is that it is something that's organic because it, it sure moved like it crazy it's a super interesting uh, piece of video so if you, if you listeners if you haven't seen it um i don't even know what the i don't even know what the video would be called uh um i think if they if they googled um sea monster on on south haven pier um that would probably bring up 
you know, that, that, that should probably bring it up. Okay, dear. Well, we have covered two things that were, uh, very close to my, my, uh, my residence and, uh, close to my heart. I'm going to throw the, throw the rope out to you and you just lead us on a trip around the great lakes and tell us about all the weird shit. Oh my gosh. Well, that, that, uh, wow, that could take a long time, you know, because we do have, we have five huge great lakes. Now, obviously three of those are, are connected to or around, um, Lake Michigan, but then you have the, the river systems and the causeways that go into Lake Erie and Lake Ontario. And each one has its own cast of characters, for lack of a better term, of, you know, lake monsters and, you know, weird activity. And the, the lakes themselves, I mean, when you look at Lake Superior, that is actually an inland sea. There, there's been so many different things said about it. Um, you know, like uh, Lake you know, Superior doesn't give up her dead. Well, there's a reason why. It's because her, her, her depths are so cold that any, you know, person who goes down with a ship and, and their body is trapped in the shipwreck, well, the, the temperatures are so cold that no bacteria forms, so therefore they never blow and they never rise to the surface. And it's well documented, at least with the SS Kamloops, and the Edmund Fitzgerald, that there are bodily remains still in these ships or around these ships. And so you have that aspect. You know, the, these, these lakes have, have been a part of human history since the first Native Americans encountered them and tried crossing them. And then you get their stories of why they think, you know, different things happened. And it plays into the great underwater panther uh, in Abishu. And in Abishu exists in Lake Superior, but then you have in Lake Huron, you have creatures like Cartagena and uh, Gassendia. And there's always one that I forget. Onair. Onair. Um, you know, we have all these Native American legends of the sea creatures, sea dragons, underwater panthers, and they, they believed very, very strongly in these, you know, these legends. So much so that it was almost a, the Native American, you know, legends of don't take more than what you need. Because if you're greedy and you, you fill your canoe with copper and furs more than what you or your tribe need, then the underwater panther will come and they will tip your canoe and take back what you have taken. So, you know, all of the, and, and you can only appease, you know, these, these spirit, you know, creatures with an offering of copper tobacco. So just from the Native American, you know, the first people who were actually here and crossed the lakes, um, they have their own stories and their own beliefs of, you know, what's in the lakes. And then you have the European, you know, settlers coming over who are looking to cash in on the fur trade and lumber and, you know, copper and, you know, all these different natural resources that they see that they've been taking. But then their ships start going missing. 
And some, you know, some say, well, you know, their ships were not built to be on the Great Lakes. This is very true. But they have weird, you know, instances like with the, the Griffin that was loaded down with beaver pelts. And LaSalle and half of his, his crew, you know, were going to make their way by land back around, you know, the, the Great Lakes, setting up first settlements while the rest of his crew was to pilot the, the Griffin back to, like, the Niagara Lakes area, sell off those pelts so that they could refinance um, the rest of their, you know, their um, campaign. And then was, you know, that part of the crew was supposed to join up with LaSalle and the rest of his crew at St. John's River, and the Griffin never came back. And we don't really know where she went down, but what we do know is she was loaded high with beaver pelts. And so you have to wonder, did um, the great underwater panther in Abishu uh, take back what was stolen from it? Or were they just hit by the, you know, the wrong storms? We do know that where they had harbored to shelter from a storm, there was a, a Native uh, Native American hunting party who was neighboring, you know, in the same harbor with them. And they were the last known people who saw this ship before it went missing. So, there, there's, really? you know, there's lots of interesting elements to that story. But then you have even more reports coming um, because you have to realize that the Lake Monster reports of the Great Lakes weren't documented until the white settlers came over. And we're actually encountering things in the water that they had never seen before. And so in their minds, you know, whatever they, you know, encountered in the ocean when they sailed across, we're probably living here in the Great Lakes. And that could or could not be true, um, depending on what point they encountered it. They're seeing, you know, these sea serpents. They're seeing what they think are plesiosaurs, um, all swimming around in the water. And we really can't discount that these creatures, scientists can very well say, oh, well, these died off at this certain time. But the interesting thing about lake monsters is you can't prove and you cannot disprove that they're there because bodies of water are so huge you will never scan the whole surface of them at one time. You will never scan the whole bottom of them at one time. And whatever's on the bottom of the lakes, if it's died, it's not fossilized. It's just going to, um, you know, melt away with time. And we will never see that because at no time, at no point in time will the Great Lakes ever be drained. Yeah, well, at least we hope not. Good Lord. Well, I, it, it, it would, with cli- with climate change. Well, it would it would take I mean, even like Erie, who is even that's our our most shallowest um, lake, with the average depth being around four hundred feet. Um, there was a uh, passenger train ferry freighter. That's what it it it, it transported was passenger train ferries. Um, the, 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 the cars and it was called the, the Marquette Vestiver number two. This was a ship about the length of a football field, a metal ship 
Now, this ship went missing in modern times in Lake Erie and has never been found to this day. Really? So if a ship, a stationary object that sank, and should be easy to find, if this ship can go undetected and missing, even to present day, then how is anyone going to find a creature that can freely swim wherever it wants in the water at whatever depth it wants in one body of water, especially as big as our Great Lakes are. Yeah, and we have absolutely no idea what's what's underneath the the lakes. I mean, there, there could be uh, very large cavernous areas that, you know, things can uh, make homes in and, uh, you know, retreat to and, you know, spend the vast majority of their non-feeding times like you said, with Erie being as shallow as it is, you know, I mean, I've, I've fished, uh, many charters out on Lake Erie and, you know, the areas were, were, you know, practically in, uh, Canadian, uh, cell tower range. Yep. Cause you always get the little ding on your phone yep. and, you know, we're, we're barely in 15, 18 foot of water, 25 foot of water. And, uh, you know, it's it's just amazing that you can be that far offshore and 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 it's it's only that shallow. Oh, that that's what a lot of people don't understand about our Great Lakes is they are huge, but in Lake Michigan, in certain areas, you can wade out up to you know and go up to your your waist, and you are a hundred feet from shore. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Um, but... The farther you go out, the the colder and deeper the water gets. So we're you know we're not talking you know anything that's going to swim up on shore and and be seen. We're you know we're talking creatures that are are lurking probably deeper in the water. And which brings me, um, I always get these uh, these wonderful um, on you know uh, internet interviews or articles sent to me. Um, about sharks in the Great Lakes. And mm. <sighs> the only shark that can live in our Great Lakes, because they are freshwater lakes, would be a bull shark. Unfortunately, bull sharks need subtropical waters. Think Florida, the Gulf of Mexico. Areas like that where, hey, the water is nice and it's, it's you know, great year-round. Our Great Lakes are not like that. Uh their warmest point is in August, and that's like mm-hmm. the first, you know, 20 feet into the water. And like I said, you can wade up to your knees that far into the water. So for a, you know, adult-sized bull shark to be, you know, living in the Great Lakes, they would have to be very close to shore, which means their dorsal fin would be seen would be showing. all the time. Because these are not, um, they're not small sharks. They're, bull sharks are, you know, up there with the great whites, you know, size 
size wise. Um, yeah, they're 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 thick. Yeah, they're a thick boy. And you know, yes, we do have a, a good food supply: salmon, you know, trout, bass, perch, um, all those types of fish, at least in Lake Michigan, um, which are good eating, you know, for for a shark, but they wouldn't be able to last long term because as soon as the icy temperatures start to take over, they are going to rapidly decline and they can only get so cold before their hearts just stop functioning. And eventually that would wash up on shore. You know, a, a creature like that washing up on shore would, would be huge news. Um, so, you know, I do get these reports all the time. Um, there is one possible um, shark attack report, and that comes from uh, the Chicago area back in 1955. Now, the only reason this is possible is this stamp in time is occurring before the installation of the different locks and dams that were put into the Mississippi River and the Illinois River to control the silver carp population. Oh, really? So it is possible that a, a bull shark was able to swim up, you know, these river systems and get into the Great Lakes and possibly bite um, the gentleman, you know, that they, they said, bar, you know, got bit. Um, the interesting thing about this report is it shows up in one book, which is shark attack. Um, the eyewitness reports say that the boy was, was um, his calf was bitten, and they saw a dorsal fin swimming away. Um, now, this could have been a, a sturgeon, or it could have been a shark. It is possible that, you know, a shark did make it into the Great Lakes, a bull shark, um, through the river systems, but after that day, no. I'm sorry. What 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 part of the year was that? Uh, I believe it was it was the summertime because um, it was a public beach and people were out swimming in the water and mm. the the I believe the the person who was bit was a gentleman. Um, I believe his age was between 16 and 21. Um, he was bitten in the calf, and somebody actually rode out to to rescue him. And brought him back on shore. So that that is our only real. That's a little. That's a little terrifying. It it, it is, but then you you stop and you think, okay, now for anything to get into the Great Lakes, it has to go through all these different locks and dams and gates, which are there to control invasive, you know, um, aquatic species. That you know, if they get into our Great Lakes is going to vastly decline the living habitat of the minnows, the fry, um, our, our sports fish that are dependent, you know, those agricultural areas um, of seaweed and, and, you know, stuff like that for their offspring to live in and be able to make it to adulthood so that they can reproduce and, and start all over again. And I guess you'd also have to assume that, you know, if, if by chance, by some fluke, they would be able to get into the lake. 
chances are they'd be looking for much warmer waters, which would probably lead them to, if they were following the shore, that they would end up following uh, finding places like Cook Nuclear or uh, Palisades Nuclear Plant, where the, the discharge water from the nuclear plant is notoriously good for fishing because the, the water temperature there is is higher than what the normal lake level is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but fishermen can't take advantage of that anymore because now those are secured areas. But uh, I know back in the day, that was one of the best places to go fishing was right outside the Palisades nuclear plant because the, the water temperature is different. It's higher. Yeah. So you would think that, you know, it would seek out more temperate uh, temperatures. Yeah, and, and, you know, you you have to factor in, so the warmer water temperatures, that's easier to survive in, but they have to be closer to shore. And, unfortunately, the more substantial fish, you know, sized fish are deeper in the water. So it's kind of, you know, a they, they, they'd have to spend half their time close to the shoreline, you know, warming themselves, but... As we know, sharks have to stay in constant motion to be able to breathe. So they would essentially right. just be cruising up and down the coastline. Um, and then at some point, they'd have to make an attempt to go out into deep water to catch and eat, you know, salmon or something of like that. Because we don't have, other than the one uh, shark, re, you know, attack report, we don't see a, a whole lot of attacks on humans. And, uh, you know, our, our, uh, Lake Michigan is actually very popular on the Michigan side with its sandy beaches for people to spend their summers. Oh yeah, for sure. So you know, if they're if they're looking for a human snack, uh, none of them are taking advantage of the um, the multitude of legs and arms that are available in in you know the the, the coastal waters. Yeah, because if you pick the right day in uh, in in August. Um, the beaches in, in Michigan will rival that of uh, what you see in Florida. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, it's amazing how many people. I mean, we we even have people who try to surf them and, you know, you would think that, you know, that would be like bringing the dinner bell for any sharks that were in the water. Aside from legend and uh, native American folklore, I'm of the belief that just about anything that's worth being passed down has some, some validation, some some uh, some foothold in history. Yeah, something had to have something had to have prompted the the story or uh, to be to be passed down to be worthy of being relayed to uh, uh, generation after generation. Beyond those, do we know of any sightings or any uh, um, documentation of creatures in in any of the Great Lakes that you know may have had uh, video evidence or? or good photographic evidence, anything that has been been of good enough quality that you can actually look at and say, okay, we can make out this and we can make out that. And, you know, it has all the earmarks of being X or, or Y. So in, in modern day time, it's, it's very hard to be in all places at all times. And even though our Great Lakes are very, very popular, there's, you know, there I guess if we had one human being stationed per 10 foot uh, over the There's thousands of miles of beach line yeah, <laughs> and across the surface of the lake, then we would probably get a much more accurate picture of what is in our, you know, what could possibly be in the lakes and, and living, you know, in the depth. 
but because the, our Great Lakes are so vast, it's very hard. Um, it, it's, it's a very chance, you know, situation where you actually see it and then you have time enough to get video or a picture because mm-hmm. most of the time, if these creatures are coming up for air, that's the only thing they're doing. They're coming up for air and then they're going back down and they're not spending a long time on the surface. Yeah. They're not up there sunning themselves. Right. Right. Because it's, it, you know, the, our great lakes are very active. They are not calm. There is always wave activity due to the wind. And depending on, you know, what part of the lake you're in, uh, if you're in one of the straits, that's very rapid moving water. So that takes exertion on anything that's living in that water to come up and swim against uh, movement of the water to, you know, reveal itself, to, to breathe, to do anything. Now, we did have reports, I believe they were in the 1970s, the Straits of Mackinac, there was actually some serpentine creatures observed swimming in the water. And we know this because a sheriff's deputy was actually contacted. He went out to the location. He did witness these sea serpents swimming on the surface. He did get a boat, and he did, you know, go out to investigate. The only problem is, is when he gets close enough to actually make a visual ID with what the creatures are, they submerge under the water and they leave the location. So the the creatures were, you know, exposing themselves to anyone on van, on land who was viewing them, and and really didn't you know seem to notice. But when a a boat started to approach them, that's when they they disappeared and left the location, um, which makes me kind of wonder if through learning capabilities, observing, you know, um, hunting strategies, you know, how to interact with other species. If these creatures haven't learned over generations that both mean humans, which means they kill us. Yeah. And so it's better to evade and, um, elude, you know, any type of ship because, obviously a human's on that ship and it might, you know, cause us damage or kill us. Well, I don't know why that would be any different than any other animal. I mean, any, you know, come deer season, the deer, the deer know the hunters are coming. I mean, they're, they flat out know when it is deer season and when deer season is over, they know because they're right back out in the fields and they're, they're not worried. You know, they, they know, they know that segment of time is, is danger time. So if these things have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years or thousands of years in our lakes and uh, they've, they've witnessed mankind uh, on multiple times, it wouldn't surprise me that they've learned behavior. And, you know, that's what people have to take into consideration when, you know, they're saying, oh, well, because no one's captured one of these, they can't exist. Well, no, they, they can't exist because if they have an intelligence similar to a dolphin, then they are going to learn to get out of our way and to, you know, go undetected. Um, same way with, you know, the Bigfoot. They, they have observed humans for a very long time. And 
they know what humans do. So you're not going to see, you know, Bigfoot's not going to stand out in the middle of the, the field and wave at you and say, hey, I'm right here. Come talk to me. Um, no, they're going to hide behind a tree because they want to see if said human has weapons. And, you know, because weapons hurt. And they've seen what weapons do to, you know, deer, rabbits, raccoons. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't want to be, you know, they don't want to be hurt. So any species that has, has interacted with humans on long term and uh, either sees the benefit, like, you know, our dogs, our cats, they will come to us because they know that we are going to feed them, give them a good life, pet them, love them, cherish them. On the opposite end of that, deer, bear, you know, wolves, they have seen what humans are like, and they go to the other extreme to avoid us. I agree with that. But I also think, like, in in the, uh, you know, cougars and bears and uh, mountain lions and stuff like that, those are natural-born predators. So so I think their initial perception of us may be that we are a danger, but not too far behind there's there's the thought of but if they don't have a gun they could be a good meal yeah so i you know i, I agree with you 100 percent on that but i think i think there might be a little bit of a polarizing uh thought with them um yeah your 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 big prey um your wolf pack or your your solitary um you know cougar hunter um Ambush predators will always have the advantage. Case in point, how many, you know, uh, we all know the jump scare is coming in the haunted house, and yet how many of us <laughs> jump in and almost pee ourselves when the, when the guy goes boo, you know? Um, sure. yeah. Humans are a very, um, if, we, if we don't have a weapon or if we're not in a group, we are uh, one of the easiest prey species that there is because we, yeah, we're very complacent yeah, and, and we startle very easily. And most of us, when we startle, we panic. I think we have been, um, I think we've been protected for so long. I think we have, um, for, for so long now we have either had thatched, uh, thatched roofs or, um, some kind of wall around us, something that we can, we can close a door at night. Yep. And we have this, we have this feeling of, of safety and uh, seclusion and we're, we're, we're out of harm's way. And I think through the, through the years, I think humanity has lost some of that, uh, you know, I don't want to say that we ever had sixth, uh, a sixth sense, um, but maybe that's not too far off. I think, I think we've, our, our senses have dulled, you know, at one point, you know, we were sleeping out under the stars and, you know, trying to make fire and, you know, they're sleeping with one eye open because you didn't know what was going to come right. to, you know, your, your camp area to, um, and we don't have that anymore. We don't, we don't worry about that. You know, I mean, occasionally, unfortunately, because humans are asses, you know, we have people break into our homes. Right. But, I, I was just about to say our, our only other predator is actually other humans. Um, yes. but when we walk out into the woods, uh, it becomes a different situation. And, you know, humans humans have evolved to live in a society, to li- live in leisure. Um, mm-hmm. 
what we haven't done is learned how to still live in the woods and to make it, you know, back out. I mean, that's a, that's a scary thought. You know, you, we as, we as people, you know, we want to go out and enjoy the outdoors and we want to be in the wilderness and we want to go hiking and we want to go camping. And I'm sure there are plenty of people that go out that are prepared for uh, a situation that would, would get out of hand, but probably by and large, the vast majority of us are taking our kids for a, a long weekend or we're spending a week camping along the, you know, Michigan shoreline yep. or something like that. And, you know, we've got packaged foods and, and, uh, a, bo- a box of matches and, you know, a thermos full of water. And, and there, there's uh, a DNR officer, you know, patrolling, you know, every, you mm-hmm. know, half an hour, you know, seeing, you know, don't you, you know, make sure you keep an eye on that fire, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, that's, that's the type of, um, outdoor activity. Most people, you know, aspire to um but then you you know you get these instances where somebody's like well i'm gonna go hiking from from this trail 20 miles and and 15 miles on this trail and it's like okay um you know keep in touch any other monsters lake monsters of uh, of interest that uh we may not have heard of but are, are prominent in in your investigations, well, I, whether it be uh, in the Great Lakes or pro- possibly inland lakes in uh, in the state of Michigan, well, we've got um, going back to the Lake Michigan um, side. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have some giant turtle reports, which are um, very fascinating. Really? Um, there's the Stearns Bayou monster, and then there's the Lake Leonaw uh, monster. Um, and they they are both turtles, but very different. Um, from from what I have gathered from the eyewitness reports of the Stern Bayou um, turtle creature, we're talking a, a turtle about the size of a Volkswagen bug, um, maybe a little bit bigger, um, which we do know existed in the fossil record. Um, the species Archelon was uh, was huge, um, but they were more of in a, this area. Um, in, in the Midwest, um, as far as the fossil record goes, I mean, I'm sorry. No, um, Archelon would have been um, more along the um, east coast, but you have okay. to remember that waterways change throughout mm-hmm. um, the formation of North America. And at one point, we did have a water causeway that went from the Gulf of Mexico all the way up to British Columbia, but we also had a waterway coming in from the St. Lawrence uh, Causeway um, that flooded into the Great Lakes area, into Lake Champlain, and then on into the Great Lakes. So it was possible for these different species to gain into our, our waterways. But the, the Stearns Bayou um, creature is very interesting because not only its size, but according to the, to the several witnesses who observed it, it was bioluminescent. And, fascinating. And so as it would swim up the, up the Stearns Bayou from Lake Michigan, um, 
we always knew it was coming because it made, um, it, it would swim along the surface and it would make a lot of noise with its, it, with its fins. But it always came usually during, you know, the nighttime, but they could see it coming because it was glowing from underneath. That's fascinating. I've never heard of this. Exactly. So we, but if we look at the way, you know, species change and alter their way of existing throughout history, and I'm talking way back going with the dinosaurs, different species evolve different abilities to live in different environments. And eventually that developed ability may either become a asset to them or it can become a nuisance. And I'm thinking with being bioluminescent in today's day and age, that is a nuisance because you're giving away your location. Yeah, I agree with that. But, um, if this thing is in, in the water that it's in, I think it, at some point it probably must recognize that it's probably one of the larger, uh, one of the larger creatures in the lake. And, and maybe there isn't a known natural predator right. to, to, to go but, after a turtle that's the size of a Volkswagen. But the only problem is, so we know that there was at least one and we're pretty sure it was a female because it came up on shore and it laid an egg and then it went back oh, out no, into, into water. The only problem is, is the people who witnessed it laying the egg went and collected the egg, and then when they were transporting it into town via horse and wagon, um, it popped out, it bumped out of the wagon when they went across the bridge and fell into the water and was lost. So we know that there's at least a mating pair, but with the loss of, of you know, that egg, we don't know if that was the loss of the next generation or if they were still a breeding pair. What's the timeline from the, the, those reports? I mean, you know, uh, year-wise, when were those reported? Um, well, it was back in the horse and buggy days. Um, I, you know, because they were going back into town for an ice cream social, mm-hmm. and they were hoping that um, people within the town, something like the doctor and stuff like that, would be able to identify what it was. Um, it's so most likely in the late 1800s or something yeah, like that. Um, but then they end up losing the egg as they are, um, you know, going into the town over the bridge. They were they were staying in a cottage that was right on the edge of Stern's Bayou, and this was back in the time when people would um, come from like Detroit, Chicago, uh, to the Lake Michigan side of Lake Michigan and staying the cottages because it was cooler during the summer. And they, you know, they wanted that, you know, that release from the heat because um, it's much cooler on the, you know, the coastline of Lake of Michigan, you know, on the, on the lake side than it is in state. Now, did you say there was also a report from the Leelanau area? Yes. So there is a report. Um, from the Lake Leelanau area, and I will say this was more modern, um, probably within, you know, from 1940s to 1970s. Um, definitely uh, within the time that Lake Leelanau was formed, 
Lake Wigelinaw is actually a man-made lake. Um, and we know this because, one, is documented, but also uh, they just flooded the area. So any trees or anything like that that were in the area, um, those are still there. So they are, um, you know, they I call them zombie trees because they look like they're living, but they're living, they're coming up out of a lake. Um, so this report goes, the, the gentleman tonight, he wanted to go perch fishing. So he was in his rowboat, had no anchor. So he rowed out and set up next to one of these trees and took the rope and he was tying his boat to one of these trees. Now, as he's in the process of doing this, his rowboat is gently budding against what he thinks is the trunk of the tree. And as he's tying this rope around the, the, the tree, a head and neck raises up out of the water. Now this, you know, uh, I don't want to say kid, he was probably a teenager, is, you know, standing up in the boat, he's tying, you know, his boat to the tree, and this head and neck are about the same level as he is. So he's looking it in the face otherwise. Yeah. Now, luckily, he hadn't fully tied his boat to the tree because at this point, he realizes um, he's tying his, his boat to a creature, not a, a tree. And so the, the tree and, and the turtle start to move away. So he pulls his rope back. He rows back into shore, and he decides he's never going fishing again. Uh, meanwhile, the, the turtle makes its way off into uh, the deeper part of the lake. That is just fascinating. I don't know why I, I, I have an affinity for turtles. And um, I, I can remember years ago when I was uh, a lot younger, there was a, I don't know if it was a made-for-TV movie or something, but it had it had like three short three short stories that they told. And uh, when I think the, the last of the three was about a, um, a large turtle that uh i think it had some uh native american implications or um but it was you know it was alive and i just always thought that, that was just the neatest thing that you know a, a big turtle and then of course gamera oh yeah and i was uh from back in the uh, uh godzilla days and uh that was another favorite of mine but that that is really fascinating especially the the fact that it's uh, bioluminescent. Yeah, and you know, but the thing, the thing with turtles that is so inter- interesting is um, there's a term called indeterminate growth, which means as long as there is space within, you know, within which the animal or creature is living, they will continue to grow. Now we see this a lot with aquatic species. And I know personally from, because I, I love turtles and tortoises too, um, I used to have uh, a lot of, of um, terraria or in aquariums with, you know, mm-hmm. all those um, tortoises, turtles, box turtles. Um, I was friends with uh, some DNR officers at a local uh, nature center and they, it's still still happens to this day, but every spring, you know, just as the school year is about to end, teachers would show up with 
these different turtle species and oh well we just want to you know turn it loose and they're like uh no that's a that's not a native species you can't just turn it loose well here we want to donate your your nature fair. So uh, at one point, I had over fifty <laughs> here's, turtles. In here's another mouth for you to feed. <laughs> yeah. So at one point, I ended up with over fifty of them um, because they were just being overwhelmed with you know these um, school uh, uh, acquisitions that nobody wanted to take care of. And so um, I I loved you know searching turtles and you know looking into their habitats and. Um, but one of the coolest things I ever saw was, um, now I am in the middle of, of Michigan. So we have, you know, we have small lakes and ponds and, and swamps around us. But I was driving a back road and crossing the middle of the road was a snapping turtle the size of a semi-truck tire. Oh, my word. He was huge. And very old, and like we talked about earlier, with the the um, biosphere that grows on on the back of their cells. Well, uh-huh. this guy, this yeah. guy had the complete setup. Uh, you know, I, I'm pretty sure he had a crayfish sitting on his back uh, as a hat. Um, <laughs> but he was he was taking his time cro- crossing the road. So I had stopped my vehicle and was observing him, watching him. Now this was back before we had cell phones that had cameras videos, all the bells and whistles on ask, it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he took his leisurely time crossing the road and I was able to observe him for a good five minutes as he made his, his trek across the road. And uh, not sure if it was male or female because they were crossing the road. So not sure if they were on their way to go lay eggs and head back or if they had laid eggs and were, you know, headed back or if they were, you know, uh, you know, doing whatever, but it was a huge snapping turtle. And, uh, the head on this guy was, I mean, probably both of my fists, um, you know, put together. Did you ever report it to like uh, DNR or anything? No, to because I, that had anything that you could match up to it. Um, no, I didn't report it to DNR because I, you know, I, I witnessed him and I thought, you know, you're, you're very old and you obviously know what you're doing and yeah. I don't want someone finding out about you and yeah, coming that was and a good call. killing you. Um, yeah, you know, cause he'd have wound up in, in some sideshow and, uh, yeah. uh, down some dirt road. Yeah. So I just, you know, I, I thought, you know, you're, you're probably at least a hundred years old, maybe older. You've been doing this for quite some time, and obviously you know what you're doing because you're still, you know, able to cross the road. And so I figured, nope, you you go back to wherever you call home, and I hope you, you know, are still here next year to do it again. So That's amazing. Man, that's a big turtle. That is a big turtle. I mean, snapping turtles are intimidating as hell to begin with. Yeah, this guy. Um, no matter no matter what size they are. Yeah, this guy, with as big as he was and as big as his head was, um, his draw his draw strength easily, um, you know, could could break your your arm. Yeah, I remember being on uh, on a on a lake that I pretty much grew up on through throughout my younger years, and there was a. 
there was a tiny little cove at the one side of this uh, this lake that was uh, near my aunt and uncle's house, and uh, it was called Turtle Bay. And uh, we'd always take the canoe back there, and we'd have a, a fish net, and it had a pretty fine uh, pretty fine net on it. So we'd go back in there, and it was kind of a horseshoe shaped and had a little island in it. And uh, there was actually a, a heron nest in the middle of that island. And every year there was a heron in that nest. And uh, we'd go back there and we'd scoop up turtles and, you know, we'd put them in terrariums or uh, aquariums and, you know, keep them for the summer. And then we'd let them back out, you know, when the summer was over, put them back in the, in the lake. And I can remember a buddy of mine, he was sitting in the front of the canoe with the net and he was scooping up and trying to, trying to catch turtles. And uh, I was paddling. I had a, it was an old canoe and it had a wood paddle and uh i took a couple of swipes with the paddle and i just kind of left it in the water and kind of used it as a as a rudder and when i pulled it up the next time there was a snapping turtle but the shell on it was probably probably every bit of a foot from from the front to the back of the shell and there was a snapping turtle that had latched onto that wood uh that wood oar and was not letting go <laughs> and uh i can remember after after getting it off and and getting back to the the cottage showing my mom and dad and it's like take a look at this and you know the the indentation that it put into that paddle was uh, it was it was amazing couldn't imagine what it would have been if, if that would have been your finger in its mouth oh yeah yeah they uh they have a lot of jaw strength and they can cause quite a bit of damage if you don't know um how to uh deal with a snapping turtle then uh they they can cause some damage amazing I'm just I'm enthralled with the the idea of a, a VW sized turtle that had bioluminescence in it. That, that'd just be a what a sight to see that. So, any other uh, creatures of note that uh, would be would be worth talking about? Well, I mean, with, with Lake Michigan, um, we have the we have the the two um, turtle reports, which is Stearns Bayou and Lake Luna, and then Lake Michigan is kind of quiet for it. It's Lake Monster Report. Up in Lake Superior, we have, you know, of course, the great underwater panther in Abisu. Um, we have the legends of the giant sturgeon, um, which are said to, you know, be the ones who put the dents in, you know, the, the hulls of ships. Um, coming really? down. Um, yes, that is a Native American legend. And um, it's said that there are um, at least one giant surgeon um in the lake and when he gets angry that's when the great gales happen um like the gales that took down the Evan Fitzgerald mm-hmm. but it's also said that if he's you know if um a ship's captain or a boat um angers him he will hit it with his tail and will um dent in the hull of the boat sturgeon are a incredibly prehistoric looking fish oh yeah and they get to sizes that are intimidating uh, en- enough just the way they are i couldn't imagine uh one putting uh putting a herd on a on a vessel yeah and you know and if you like today's surgeon um i would say they are they are probably about middle average for the size that they could reach. But if you, if you were to go back, you know, 
to when the first Native Americans were crossing, you know, the Great Lakes, I, I have to imagine that the, the sturgeon were bigger um, because they had no human predators. And once, once the sturgeon reached a certain size, nothing else messes with them in, in the lakes. So they really had no predators until human beings came along and were like, oh, hey, maybe that tastes good. Um, you know, and, and we're hunting them to, to eat. Um, so I'm imagining, you know, a, a 15 foot sturgeon probably was, was, you know, back at that time, probably was the norm. Whereas now that is a rarity. Um, you know, you're, you're lucky a, a six footer, um, you know, is probably considered, you know, the, you know, average size for, size for right yeah. now. Yeah, they're a scary looking fish. They're, they're scary, but if you if you like dinosaurs and you like um, uh-huh. prehistoric, oh, yeah. you know, creatures um, or the fossil record, they are they are a very cool living fossil um, or a yeah. A, it's like it, it's like having a window back to yeah. to prehistoric times. It's it's amazing. Yes, they are. Um, now now imagine this fish, but scale him up to the size of a bus and then you have a species called Doncolosteus, the armor plated fish that we actually had swimming here um, back during the times of the dinosaurs here in the lakes. Um, we have found fossils of them in Ohio. No kidding. And so ima- imagine a, a armored tank of a fish swimming through the water and it is the apex predator of its time. And hungry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you don't get that size without eating, eating a good meal. Wow. And, that's, that's an amazing And thought, its man. prey was small sharks. Because at that time in history, the armor-plated fish were bigger than the shark. So it was swimming around eating uh, ancient shark, you know, um, early or early shark species. Um, whereas today we have the reversal, which, you know, the great whites, the bull sharks, the makos, stuff like that are bigger than, you know, the, the prey items that they're chasing. You know, so many of these things stem from, uh, native American folklore and, you know, I can't help, but some of this goes back to the, the Sasquatch as well. So much of their, handed down stories mm-hmm. are based. They have, uh, animals associated with specific, uh, traits, yeah. you know, of honesty and truth and this and that, you know, and Sasquatch actually is one of those. Uh, I believe it's for truth. Everything else on their menu is, is a real animal. It's, you know, it's an Eagle or it's a Hawk or it's a, uh, a deer or a bear or a lion, you know, a mountain lion. I think their their versions of the truth are are probably more true than what we know. When you talk about other things like the sea monsters and the uh, the large the large creatures that lived in the lakes at the times, I, I think you got to give you know if you're gonna if you're gonna buy the the truths about the Sasquatch, there's got to be some truth behind what they're talking about as well as far as the the lake creatures. Well, I I, I think there is and. Um, 
when I was doing research into my Lake Monster book, I came across a very interesting fact. And so I want you to, and I want our, your listeners to picture you're, you're one of these um, Native American braves and you're in your dugout canoe, which is about 20 feet long. And you know that the Great Lakes are kind of treacherous, so you're sticking close to the shoreline. And it's easier to navigate the shore, the waters, than going through the woods because you're carrying all these pelts. Now, you're paddling along, and all of a sudden, there is a, the, the water about 10 feet from your canoe starts to boil. And up from this water popped this huge creature that has tree branches growing out of its, its head. And it has a, a head like a, um, a deer, but it's much, much bigger. And it's covered with seaweed and algae. And it's got these legs that are, are pounding into the water. And it's watching your canoe. And this creature sees you and suddenly it's trying to attack your canoe. So you're trying everything that you can get, do to get away from it. And it does pursue you for a little bit, but then it seems to uh, lose interest and, and it goes back to what it was doing. So you get back to your settlement and you, you retell the story. And a couple of months later, it happens to somebody else from your tribe or from a neighboring tribe. And so now you, you make a, a standing that there is this monster living in the lake. And it's in, you know, this particular location and you have to be aware of it because if you go too close to there, it's going to attack your canoe and, and tip your canoe over and probably drown you and lose all of your, your hunting um, supplies and your pelts. With this, with this imagery going on in your head, now, as I was doing research on my Lake Monster book, I came up or came across a very interesting fact, which has been proven and documented by biologists that moose can dive up to 20 feet underwater to eat seaweed and um, underwater vegetation. Yes, they steal, they steal their noses. And they dive underneath the water to eat. They grab big mouthfuls, they come back, they swallow it, and then they, they continue to do this. They have the size and the ability to do this. Now, imagine you're in one of these canoes and a, and a moose pops up next to you. Now, you know that moose live on land, but you sure as hell didn't know that they could go into the water, dive under the water, and come back up. But... This moose comes up, he's covered with algae, seaweed, whatever. Uh, he doesn't really look like a moose at that point. That scares the crap right, out yeah. of you. So wow. they, they know, you know, they, they have documented that moose do this. But they have also documented killer whales and Greenland sharks that have moose carcasses inside them. Which means really? they either killed and ate the moose while they were swimming across the waterway. Or the moose yeah. was underneath the water eating when they came, you know, they became dinner themselves. So 
if you look at the description of Inabishu, which is a, they call it the great underwater panther or lynx, but it has the head of a horse, the, the horns of a, a moose. It has slimy, um, you know, tendrils of, of, uh, seaweed coming off of it. It has, um, a spiked tail. Sometimes has spikes going down its back. And, you know, these, these huge, uh, you know, feet that, um, you know, can punch holes into a, a canoe. Well, you're, you're looking at the description of one of these moose who have decided that, uh, they want the vegetation that's underwater, which has different nutrients and minerals and stuff growing on land. And suddenly you, you have the truth behind every, you know, uh, lake monster report fitting that description in Lake Superior. That's amazing. I'm so glad you've told that story. That, that is, that, that makes, that makes so much sense. And with, with what knowledge they had back in those days, they told that the only way they knew how. Right. And you have to remember that the Native American language was a spoken language. They didn't really write things down until modern day. So this was, this was knowledge that was passed on from tribe to tribe um, as they encountered each other. And, you know, hey, do you know if the, if the, you know, underwater panther is active this season? You know, has the Thunderbird, you know, calmed it down or, or held it down? Um, you know, do you, do you know, has anyone seen it? And so, you know, this would become a topic of conversation for anybody who is travis, you know, traveling across the surface of the lake in any mode or any distance. The only way that they were able to relay these stories were to whatever they could wrap their head around. And, you know, like nowadays we consider ourselves very educated and, you know, you wouldn't think that someone today that would see a moose pop up, you know, you know, out of, out of the water with seaweed hanging on probably would recognize that, that that was an unusual situation, but you were actually seeing a moose. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, back in that time period for, you know, for Inabishu and for, you know, a moose to be popping up out of the water like that, it would be the same thing today as if Godzilla were real and, you know, people had to determine where he was before you went out on the water. God, I wish that was true. I'm such I'm such a little kid at heart and such a nerd. I can't help it. I just watched the new Godzilla. I know. Kong I thought last I I thought last Friday it was awesome. <laughs> I was sitting there watching it with my dog. I was just like a little kid watching it again. Just just great. Well, listen, Shitan, uh, we're we're at uh, about an hour and a half, and uh, <laughs> I have I have thoroughly enjoyed uh, listening to you and 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 the stories that you've had about this subject. And uh, I would love to have you on again. Oh, with, I would, uh, I would love some to be of on your other again. topics. Um, the Michigan Dog Man is something that I'd I'd like to look into, and you know, I mean, just looking down the list of all the things that you you've uh, you've written about is just like kid in a candy store. Just uh, it, you know, we could I'd be more than happy to do a show with you about each one of your books. <laughs> so, oh, sure. Um, no, 
No problem. Uh, I, I love to talk about, you know, the, this is my favorite thing to talk about and I thoroughly enjoy it. Um, you know, it, it, it is a major portion of my life. So I, I am just very passionate about it and, uh, let me know whenever you want me on, on a show. And, uh, I, I, I can talk for hours. <laughs> I'm so happy you said that because <laughs> I, I just, I knew like 10 minutes into our talk before we started recording, I was like, Oh my God, I hope she likes my show because I really want to have her back again. Oh <laughs> yeah. I am always, uh, uh, looking forward to coming back on shows and, uh, uh, this has been a, a great, uh, wow. It's been an hour and a half. I didn't know. Um, actually hour 45 minutes. Oh, wow. Uh, wow. Uh, I didn't even realize it. Well, that's a good thing. I love talking about, um, all of this, you know, uh, it's, it's too much of an umbrella term to say, uh, high strangeness, but paranormal cryptozoology, um, I'm even getting more and more into the UFOs because I, I um, research and, and uh, you know, cover stories on that. So, yeah, all of it is, is fascinating to me to talk about, and I just love it. Well, you can count on hearing from me again because uh, this has been fascinating. And uh, that, that last story you told about the moose coming up, I'm absolutely floored because, you know, there is, I've seen an elephant go underwater. Mm-hmm. And that in itself looks ridiculous, but it kind of makes sense. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but but a, a, a hooved, antlered, forest dwelling, how it ever decided to do it the first time and realize that it was it was something that was worthwhile. But hooves are obviously not flippers or, or paddles, or they're not they're not designed to to be moving uh, uh, large amounts of water and to be able to get down to the depths of twenty feet to to forage for uh for a different type of food is it's just it's astounding yeah it's it, when i when i came across that fact i was like really so then i i checked with a couple of different sites and i actually talked to a a um biologist um and they said yeah they can do it they 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 close their noses shut and they just they they have I mean, if you've ever seen a moose in person, it's literally a walking tree. So, yeah, pretty much. I mean, they they literally take up a whole road, a two lane road, when they walk down the middle of it. Mm. So, whatever a moose wants to do, a moose will do. Fascinating. This has been a great, great conversation with you, Shitan. I've absolutely loved having you on the show. Oh, thank you. I'm going to reach out to you again. It probably won't be too long. And uh, we can do it again on another subject, but uh, sure, no, no problem. I, I, I am glad to come back on the show. It, it will be so much fun. And hopefully, I will see you uh, at least at the the Dewey Lake convention yeah. with the yeah. lo- guys from the Lost Cryptids, and uh, quite possibly there in Ann Arbor at the uh, the convention you were talking about earlier. Yes, yeah. I have plans to uh, I have plans to go to both. Awesome, and hopefully, COVID will keep its. Uh, Keep its distance. I mean, everybody cross their to fingers. Do those. Everybody cross their fingers and put your mask on and get your shot. Because yeah. boy, I, I have plans for the summer and uh, and I, I want to make sure everybody uh, gets out to events and uh, you know gets uh, gets to come and enjoy themselves. All right, Shatan, 
Noir. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you. Bye-bye. Until next time, this has been Uncomfortable. The show is written, produced, and hosted by me, Eric Salagi. The show's social media presence is developed by Tammy Jordan. Submit your experiences to contact.uncomfortable at gmail.com to be featured on an upcoming episode. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter, all at Uncomfortable Podcast. And if you would, go to iTunes, subscribe to the show, and leave us a five-star rating and a review. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.